You may be seated. This morning as we turn to the Word of God, we're in the sixth chapter of the uh, book of Ephesians, the letter of Ephesians. It's so amazing when you and I think about what ground we have covered through this letter. As we have uh, begun with the first three chapters, uh, Paul the Apostle has been laying out for the believers in the city of Ephesus, which was a, a large and prosperous and rich place made up of many different peoples, whether they were Jew or Gentile. And so in those first three chapters, he laid out for us the tremendous work of the cross and how through, how through Jesus Christ, God has so forgiven us and cleansed us and renewed us and refreshed us through the great power of that work of his blood. And if you haven't had a chance to read it, you should go back. And pour your mind and your heart over those words so that you can rich, richly understand that power of Jesus Christ that is able to deliver us from the dominion of darkness. And yet in that fourth chapter, he begins to talk about living a life worthy of what God has done. Because we, we didn't do anything. God did it all. Amen? I mean, it's by that great work of his work that he has done something for us and we could not do for ourselves. He has delivered us from the power of sin. He has disarmed its strength so that now we're freed from its dominion. And we are now in Christ. And in that new dominion of Christ, Paul now is from chapter 4 all the way through chapter 6 is training the Ephesians on how to live in this new life that God has given. How to walk before God with great joy and celebration for the fact that God has forgiven us and cleansed us and renewed us and now called us to a new mission, a new purpose, a new way of living. He says you're to put off the old, renew your mind and put on the new. Isn't that wonderful? I tell you, it's just like going and buying a new suit or having, some, uh, having someone prepare for you a new dish. One of the things that oftentimes uh, in our family we enjoy is when we come across a new recipe and, uh, and my wife works and my daughter works and are preparing it. And we put it on the table and we go, ah, man, that's good. Have you ever done that? Well, have you done that with Jesus? You see, that's what Paul's message is. So when you start tasting of the Lord and the great mercies and the great power of the cross, you begin to go, oh, Lord, that's so good. You are so good. So in... And dealing with that whole business of then coming to know Christ and the new life that he's given us. He went through and he talked about what this new life really re represents. And it's called the sanctifying process. I want you to understand that because it's a word that we don't use every day in common language. I'm sure some of you sat down at the table this morning and you looked at your, your wife and you said, Honey, I can't wait to go talk about sanctification at church. I just can't wait. I'm sure that's something you've talked about, right? No, we don't use that word at all. We don't think about it at all. But you have come into a relationship with God through Christ where he is now sanctifying you. Well, what does that mean? It means he is drawing you from the old way of living, which was based upon a sinful nature that always sought yourself above God. And he is now training you. The Holy Spirit is now at work training you to let go of those old things that were part of the displeasing of God and holding on to the good things that now please and, and satisfy our souls. They please God and satisfy our souls. And so in chapter 4, as he's talked about living a life worthy of the gospel, he says, listen, if you really want to understand what God has done for you and you want to live a life worthy of the gospel, 
you will maintain your unity with Jesus Christ. And you will maintain your unity with each other as you walk with Christ. So, so often you hear of what's happening in churches that are dividing what's happening. It's the devil at work dividing people. I can guarantee you that every division that has ever happened in any group of believers happens not because God is being honored, but because the devil has put a foothold into that congregation and destroyed their unity in Christ. You see, that's really what this battle is about. That's really what Paul is beginning to end the letter with because what he knows is he can destroy the church's work in the world if he can take one of you out, just one of you, if he can lead you down a road where you cheat on your spouse or you embezzle money or you do anything that represents the devil in the world who is at work in the world, if he can expose the church as being under the dominion of the devil. There was a church in this community that had become very, very powerful in its ministry and in reaching people for Christ it would uh, exercise discipline and call people down for, for immoral behavior that in their membership. They were a very strict church in the sense that they really were endeavoring to represent Christ and his kingdom. And it only came to light years later that the pastor and a couple of other people were embezzling money. The pastor's now in jail. And you think, well, that just affected that church. No, it affected the entire church. We think about the Roman Catholic Church and the scandals that have happened with priests taking advantage of small, innocent children. And you say, well, that's the Catholic Church. No, that's the church. And the devil has used it to destroy the witness of Christians in the, in the culture. You see, that's what the devil is after. He is out to destroy the church. Why? Because it is the vessel God has chosen. You, the church, are the vessel God has chosen to present the gospel to those who are in darkness, to lead them out of light. And he is fit to be tied. The devil hates you. He hates your faith in Christ. He hates your desire to love God, to please God. And he wants to take every measure he can to make sure that your profession is seen by others as, if that's a Christian, I don't need Jesus. I remember talking with my, my brother-in-law years ago. He's, a, he's a, a dental, a doctor of dentistry. And he came to me in a moment where he was very perplexed. He said, I've hired a woman in my office, and she says she's a Christian. And I said, well, yeah, what's the problem? He says, well, if that's a Christian, I never want to be one. I said, what are you talking about? He said, Every time I ask her a question, she lies to me. And I find out later she's told me a lie. And I want you to know if that's who Christ is in your life, I don't need him. That's the devil's work. And so the question comes then in chapter 6 as Paul has led us through what it means to be sanctified. He says, wives, submit to your husbands. Husbands, love your wives. Why? Because that's the way God's sanctifying you, making you more like Christ, helping you put off your sinful nature and putting on the new self, which is Jesus in you. He comes to chapter 6 and he deals with this battle cry. He says, finally, 
put on the full armor of God. And so in preparing our hearts to hear that word this morning, I, I just simply want you to understand that we're going to be dealing with one, two particular places of the battle armor that God is talking about this morning. We're going to be talking about the breastplate of righteousness and the gospel of peace. So to do that, I want to, I want to very quickly ask if you would stand with me as we hear God's word. And as we stand, I, I would just hope that God would prepare our hearts to be able to receive this word because there's a chance as we read it that you will just read this and it will just like be water off a duck's back. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. Put on the full armor of God so, so that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. For your struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of the dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. Therefore, put on the full armor of God so that when the day of evil comes, you may be able to stand your ground, and after you have done everything to stand, stand firm then with the belt of truth buckled around your waist with the breastplate of righteousness in place and with your feet fitted with the readiness that comes from the gospel of peace. And this is the word of God. Would you be seated? As we deal with this whole business of righteousness, what is Paul talking about when he says put on the breastplate of righteousness? Well, last week we covered uh, that first item which he talked about which was truth. As you look in chapter 6, verse, uh, verse 12, he says that our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but it's against rulers and against authorities and against powers of this dark world and against spiritual forces in the, uh, of evil in the heavenly realms. Well, why does he go to all that trouble? Because he really wants you to understand who your enemy is. Your enemy is someone who wants you to be deceived. He wants you to believe a lie. And so we're seeing that in our culture today when we're seeing this tremendous surge. And, and I'm wondering why it's happening, but this tremendous surge of, of, of identity that is, or lack of identity that is taking the next generation where people are confused about their gender. It used to be called gender dysphoria. When you went to a counselor and you, you had this condition, people would diagnose this. Now it's just supposedly a common thing. Well, let me tell you, there is great darkness, not only in our sexuality, there's great darkness in our business, in our government, there's great darkness in the church. And that darkness is there not because Christ is being glorified or understood, not because the people of God are embracing what God has done for them, they are beginning to believe the lies. We talked about how for 125 years, seminarians were trained and taught that there was never a Pontius Pilate in the history records of humanity in the, that, that are recorded in the Bible. For 125 years, pastors were being trained to understand that the Bible had errors, that it was not the Word of God in its totality and in its clarity. And for 125 years, that has infiltrated the church to the point now where people say, well, you know, that's, that is your understanding of the Word of God. Or maybe that's what God has revealed for you but not for me. And so this subjectiveness has come into our culture in such measure. Well, in, in, in the most amazing thing in God's tremendous, tremendous providence, uh, we found out that indeed there was a Pontius Pilate because archaeologists uncovered an amphitheater that was built by the Romans in the city of Caesarea. 
And there on a stone dedicating that amphitheater is the word Pontius Pilate, the first and only historical record of his life. Now imagine that. Imagine being trained and taught for 125 years the Bible is full of errors and suddenly finding an archaeological discovery that says, no, the Bible's true. Why is that so important? Well, when you and I think about truth, we talked about how important it is that truth, as Paul is describing it, is not a fact. It's a characteristic of those who have come to know Christ. We live out the truth. We are endeavoring to live it out. This morning, as we come into the breastplate of righteousness, we begin to think, okay, righteousness is what God has done for us in the cross. If you go back to Romans and you study what Paul teaches us there, you find the most amazing thing is that Paul is saying that we are made righteous not through our own works, not through our own efforts, but we are made righteous when we confess our sins and receive Christ into our hearts. And in that confession and faith, in that repentance, in that moment, God tells us that he has clothed you with the righteousness of Christ so that you're able to stand before God. You are able to stand before God and he doesn't see our sin any longer. He only sees the righteousness that covers you. That is not your righteousness, it's Christ's righteousness that is now yours. It is given to you by God through faith. And so when you read this passage and you say, okay, put on the breastplate of righteousness, that is the first thought that most Christians have when they read this passage. But that is not the righteousness Paul is specifically talking about here. Well, what is it? It's a righteousness that comes from God. Yes, that's true. It is still from God. But more importantly, it's a righteousness that deals with our holiness. That when we come to a relationship with God in Christ, there is something within us, within me, that yearns to be righteous, that yearns to be holy, that yearns to be pleasing God. And it's that conscience within us that really is at work to, to, to call us to that understanding that God has done something for me I cannot do for myself. And so because of that, how do I respond? I respond in thanksgiving. There's nothing I can do to add to the work of what Christ had done for me in saving me. I can't make my life better so I'm more holy. I need Christ to be holy. And so when he says, put on the breastplate of righteousness, what he is really saying is, Christian, live out what you believe and live a life that represents it. When you think of the word holiness, that has a powerful packing of meaning in our day. Holiness is simply this. It's being different from the way you were and the way the world is. That's what holiness is. Holiness is being different from the way you were and the way the world is. The world is under the dominion of evil. It's living out its purpose under the prince of the power of the air, but not you. You've been called to a different world, a different world, a different kingdom, kingdom of light. And so this righteousness Paul talks about, first of all, is, is a characteristic it's a characteristic of conversion. In other words, if you are not a Christian, you don't yearn to be righteous. But if you are, you yearn for it. You desire it. 
you want it. I remember distinctly when I first came to Christ, it was a junior year of high school, and I came back to Darlington after that, that time of giving my life to Christ, and I began reading the Bible. The more I read the Bible, the more I wanted to live, excuse me, please pardon me, the more I wanted to live out a life pleasing to God. I remember reading the Gospel of John and literally weeping as I read these words because I realized that John was recording not that Jesus died for the sins of other people. He died for my sins. And Jesus' words became more prominent in my thinking, in my formation, and in such ways that yearning within me was this desire. Where did that desire came from? come from? It came from God. And so that's why we talk about being born again, being born from above. What does that mean? It means a new birth, a new way of thinking, a new way of living that is not from me. It is from God. And it happens at our conversion. And so that really brings the question, are you converted? I'm not asking you, do you know that Jesus died for your sins? I'm sure you know that. The world knows that. The question is, has it converted your heart so that you desire to be righteous and holy? And if you're, it's not there, then you're not converted. Or your conscience has been so seared by the evil of the world that you have forgotten the calling to which God has called you. The other part of this righteousness that Paul talks about is it constitutes God's divine image after which we are to be renewed. If you go back to Genesis, God created men and, men and women in the image of God, and therefore we were to reflect who God is. God is loving, he's holy, he's just, he's right, he's pure. God is always forgiving. God is always persevering. God is always, and all of those attributes, we were created by God to shine back as a mirror to God so that when Adam and Eve walked with God, they had no fear of being in God's presence. They had no concern that there was something in their life that God would point out and say, wait a minute, you've got that wrong. They were completely pure in their conscience, clean in all their thoughts. They were one with God. And the most amazing thing is this, this conversion we have brings us to that place where we yearn for righteousness in such manner because we desire to be in line with who God is. Someone once wrote, we really come to know who we are, who we really are meant to be, only when we un understand who God really is. And so the righteousness that we desire, that right living that we have, the motivation to be right with God comes from him because of who God is. But thirdly and most importantly, it's a vital protection against the assaults of the enemy, the devil. It is a vital protection against the assaults that you have against you in your faith this morning. You see, that desire to be righteous is, is that motivating power of the Holy Spirit in you. And through it, God begins to help you in two distinct ways. First, you become aware that you are now new. You are, you are different from who you once were in Christ. You once were in Adam because you were descended from Adam and sin entered the world through Adam and spread to all humanity. Now you are in Christ and now the righteousness of God is now 
in Christ and flowing into you in such measure that this new life you have frees you from the old and allows you to wear a whole new way of living. And in that way of living, this desire for righteousness is a necessary defense for that life. It is also sufficient to protect you from the devil who wants to take you out. It's these two points I want to point out to you this morning that are so powerful. These two points, that righteousness is a necessity for our defense. And that secondly, it is a sufficient to protect you. Now, how do I mean this? Well, first, let's look at this first one. It's a necessity. It's a necessity in the sense that this righteousness helps us first discover the wiles of the devil. That when we begin to examine who God is and know his precepts and his laws and his, his statutes, when we begin to understand who God is, we are able to very much, very quickly discern when the devil is coming in to deceive us. For instance, how many times have you thought to yourself, I am just not worthy to receive God's love? You ever heard that? God surely can't love me because, because I'm not as good as I should be. How many times have you thought that? Well, where in the world does that thought come from? It certainly doesn't come from the gospel because God so loved you that he gave his only begotten son that who you are in believing in him, you would never have to worry about perishing. And yet the devil works constantly, tirelessly to bring into your mind doubts and fears about your relationship with God. Do you hear this? That he wants to so trouble your soul that you begin to doubt your salvation. Well, if I was a Christian, I wouldn't think those kind of thoughts. If I was a Christian, I wouldn't be wanting to be tempted to go down and go into that door. <laughs> the fact you are a Christian means you will be tempted. The fact you are a Christian means you begin to become aware of the wiles of the devil that wants to, to disarm you from that faith that you have in Christ. You, you, you've heard it said that, that we are once blind, but now we see. Well, the God of this world wants to blind the eyes of us who believe into knowing and believing and trusting what God has said that he's done for us. And so in that manner... He will oftentimes lead Christians like you and me into deception where he wants to so take out your witness for Christ, he will begin to so tempt you to think that evil is good and good is evil. It happens all the time in the church. Well, it's really not that bad. Well, it's better than that as a comparison I mean, I, I have heard all kinds of, of kind, I've heard all kinds of people who have stumbled into the wiles of the devil because they, instead of looking at God's word and trusting it, begin to rationalize sin. And they begin to say, well, you know, I just fell into that affair because God put that person right in my way. You ever heard that? 
or I, I, I didn't really intend to steal that money. It's just that I needed some extra cash. And lo and behold, there it was. It just came right before me on my desk, and no one was looking. So I just took it and put it in my pocket. God provided that for me. Do you hear what's going on there? Now, I'm using some absurdities here, but you can do this very subtly. You go to a movie, and you know this movie is showing you things that are titillating you in places where you shouldn't be titillated. Well, it's just a movie. Well, would you invite people to do those kind of things in the living room in front of your children? No, we wouldn't do that. But so often we lose the perspective of what is happening around us because though we're in the world, we're not of it. We belong to Christ. And the subtleties of the devil is he doesn't want a mile. He just wants an inch. That's all he wants. Giving him an inch. That's all he needs. And once he's introduced that kind of thought into your life, he will use it to pry open everything else that he wants to do to destroy you. I was watching, I don't know if you've ever worked with, with granite, but I was watching on a YouTube video how they harvest granite from quarries. Do you know how they do this? This is amazing to me. When you go to the quarry and they want to harvest the granite that comes to your house as a beautiful, uh, a beautiful countertop, do you know how they harvest that? I used to think they went in with a big ball, you know, on the end of a crane and just smash everything. You know, no, they don't do that at all. What they do is they begin to drill a hole and they drill it just deep enough where they can put a wedge in. And if they want a straight line, they put those wedges in a straight line all the way down that huge rock. And I'm talking about rocks as big as this building and sometimes bigger. And they just talk with a little hole. And they take the wedge and put it in that hole in such a measure. Then they pour a little water. And someone takes, of all things, a two-pound hammer. Do you hear me? A two-pound hammer. And they take that hammer and knock just once or twice, the wedge, those series of wedges, one after the other, tick, 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 come back and start again, tick, 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 and before long, you begin to see it. What once was a hole begins to become a crack, and then when in a matter of minutes, the entire slab of granite, maybe seven feet deep or more, shears off like a slice of bread. When you and I understand the righteousness that God wants us to be, the people of holiness, the separateness he wants us to have from the ways we once were in the world that was around us, the devil wants to come in and put one little wedge. And he does it by saying this, did God really say that? That's how he does it. Did God really say that? Well, yeah. and you hear the justification all over. Well, they really love each other. They really love each other. They really love each other. Really? When the devil begins to hammer 
a wedge into your soul and wants to separate you from, ab from abiding in Christ, he not only helps you to call evil good and good evil, he will not stop until the fissure has grown so great that he will literally cause great joy in hell when the world sees the exposure of the crack that becomes the fissure. I've told you this story before when I was in Boston sir, uh, studying at Gordon Conwell Theological Seminary. Let me tell you, seminary is a great place to study, but it does not, it does not, it does not translate into personal holiness. I don't know if you understand that. There are people who study the depths of theology that are still separated from Christ. In that study, there's a point where you just need to get away and go back into the world because you can become so theologically bound in your thinking that you forget what it is that we are dealing with as far as our lives. And so I took a train ride into into Boston to eat one of the lobsters that are offered like there was a pound lobster for two dollars and by the way let me tell you that was a deal in that day I had a wonderful day it was just a wonderful day of being separated from all of that and getting ready to go back into my studies and I got onto a train and lo and behold it was the five o'clock tra rush traffic that came all the people who were leaving downtown Boston to return to their suburban homes and there on that train a woman comes in and she is followed by two men who were incredibly desirous of her you could tell it they looked like they looked like two cats that were waiting for the salmon and as she sat down, she was just incredibly, incredibly excited that she was being pursued by two men. And as we sat together, she sat beside me, and we were facing each other, the two men on the opposite side. All I wanted to do was crawl into a book. Interestingly enough, I was reading the book called Adrift. It was a national bestseller that, that year about a man who had fallen off his boat or had capsized, and he was adrift in the ocean trying to survive. That's how most Christians feel, don't you? Adrift, trying to survive in the world. And so as she's sitting beside me, she, she begins to try to a conversation, and she says, are you, are you coming out of from work? And I said, no, I'm, I'm actually returning to school. Well, where do you go to? What school do you go to? Do you go to Boston University? Do you go to Yale? said, no, I, I go to a seminary called Gordon-Conwell Theological Seminary. She said, oh, I've never heard of that. What kind of school is that? Well, I said, well, it's an interdenominational evangelical church school. And she, she kind of frowned a little bit and said, where, where are you from? And I said, well, I'm from South Carolina. And she went, oh, are you really? Do you know Jim Baker? And I said, no. And I, I really just shut down at that point. And she said, I just want to know, do you, what do you think about all that? And I didn't know how to answer. She said, do you think Jim can be restored to the ministry? And I, I gave some flippant answer. Well, you know, if he... If he if he goes under church discipline and he follows this and that, then maybe, maybe he can be restored. And as I was getting off the train, 
the Holy Spirit came upon me as I took my step on the pad as I got off the train and I suddenly realized this woman was not caring about Jim Baker when she asked, could he be forgiven? Her question had nothing to do with Jim Baker. Her question was, could she be forgiven? The devil just robbed me of an opportunity to tell her of the love of Christ. That's his wiles. He wants to make you so doubt what Christ has done for you in such measure that he wants to rob you of the ability to share Christ and what Christ has done for you. We are not Christians because we're good people. By the way, would you just tell your neighbor, you're not as good as you think you are. Would you do that right now? Would you? We are not Christians because we're good people. We're Christians because God so loved us, he, knowing our sins, chose to forgive and call us to himself. Amen? And so the moment you and I begin to get prideful and puffed up and say, well, it's my church, it's my this, it's my, look out. There's the devil. His wiles are working in you. Righteousness is necessary. It's necessary for our defense against the wiles of the devil. It's also necessary to repel his assaults. What do I mean by that? It's necessary to repel his assaults. Let me tell you, you can know the devil is out for you. You can know his tricks. You can know his trade, but it will not save you from his effect. Because you have no power over the sin that is in you. Let me ask you this. When is the first time you really began to struggle with your sin? Wasn't it when you came to Christ and desired to follow him? The truth of the matter is the reason it became a struggle for you at that point was because you were under the dominion of the devil and you enjoyed your sin. You didn't think it was anything worth being worried about until you heard of God's judgment against all unrighteousness. And you suddenly realize because of the gospel that you were guilty and you deserved God's wrath. You deserved his punishment being prepared for all those who, who sin against him. And so I always find it so funny. People talk about, well, I just can't believe in God because God would never send anybody to hell. God's not sending anybody to hell. They're getting there on their own pretty well by themselves. You see, righteousness is necessary to repel the assaults of the devil because truly, the moment we become prideful thinking we have had anything that we contribute to our salvation, the devil has a foothold. And so we come to him who is our righteousness, Jesus, and we confess our sins to him. We don't hide them. We confess our sins to each other. We're not dissuaded that we're not sinful. In fact, the more we become followers of Christ, the more we become aware of the overwhelming pride and lust that are in our hearts. And the more we need Christ, not the less. And the most amazing part of this is that those who are unconverted, they have no ability to resist the wiles of the devil. But we who have been converted, we who have been given the righteousness of Christ, have been given that righteousness because the moment we received it, as weak as we once were, we now have received a divine grace 
that has invited us into the liberty of loving God, knowing that through him, Jesus, God has paid for all my sins and completely freed me from the dominion of the devil. By the way, that's the first question of the Heidelberg Catechism. What is my only hope in life and in death? It is that I belong in body and soul, not to myself, but to my, my blessed Savior, who at the cost of his own blood has fully paid for all my sins and completely freed me from the dominion of the devil and now makes me so heartedly willing and ready from now on to live for him. This is the evidence of the converted heart. And it is exactly where the attack of the devil comes. We say, well, Robert, why is this so important? Well, it's important because the righteousness that God gives us is also there to protect us. Protect us in what way? First, it protects us by turning our, cow our depravity into sanctity. You see, once we enjoyed being depraved, we thought depraved was good. You don't believe it? Look at Duncan Hines and the way they advertise their cakes. It's sinfully delicious. Isn't that weird? Sinfully delicious. I mean, have you ever met a sin that didn't promise just the world and everything in it? That's the way it works. But then now we see it's depravity and we decide, no, we want to sanctify our lives. We don't want to live that way. We don't want to live in a way that's immoral because God is holy. It turns, interestingly, it turns our cowardice into courage. Think of Peter before, before he, he, uh, he saw the resurrection. Think of what happened in that man's life. Jesus comes to him and says, who do men say that I am? And Peter says, you're the Christ. And Jesus says, you got it. And God gave it to you. God lets you understand that, Peter. But I tell you, before the cock crows, you will deny me three times. Never, never will I do that. And the cock crowed, and guess what happened? You know, the, the only place in the Bible that I really want to go ask somebody about was Peter. It doesn't record it. It only says that after the resurrection, Jesus met with Peter by themselves. I know what happened, but I wish I could have seen it. Jesus probably appeared to him, and Peter just thought, oh, he, he will never want to love me again. And it was Peter, chosen by God, who delivered the first sermon after the giving of the Holy Spirit. This Jesus whom you crucified, God has raised and made both Lord and Christ. Where does that courage come from? It doesn't come from us. It comes from the righteousness of God in us. When someone sees you praying for your meal at the restaurant, they come over and say, why are you praying? Well, it's just a kind of a good habit. I, I thought we kind of do no, I, I, I pray because I have come to know the Lord who provides for me, and this is his provision. You see, there's courage. Let me tell you, church, listen to me. It's going to take a lot of courage for us not to do it in a prideful way, but to do it in great humility, to allow people that our choices, our decisions on how we live are based upon our love for Jesus. And that love should be so winsome that people want to hear the whole story of what God did for you that created that kind of courage in your heart. Righteousness is important because it thirdly and finally it, is, it weakens. Excuse me, it turns our weakness into strength. Some of you are dealing with temptations that are so strong that if anyone around you knew what you were dealing with, 
you would blush and run out of this room right now. And your only hope is Christ. But the moment you come to Christ and begin to confess these things to him, he gives you strength to resist it. He does, not you. Isn't that glorious? That I know someone who knows me so well that I can come to him with anything and he will not cast me out but only strengthen me. You say, well, Robert, that's great for the first part of this. You've talked about the righteous breastplate of righteousness. What does this have to do with the shoes? Well, notice how Peter, I mean, Paul says, when you've done everything you could to when you when you've done everything you can do to stand then stand firm what are these shoes that he's describing well they are two things first they are the shoes that god gives you for the preparation or the readiness to walk with god the readiness to walk with god right now in a country far from here are people who have claimed victory over the united states army and are taking over a country, and they're saying that God, God has blessed them to do this. And you know something? They're right. God has allowed what has happened to in, in Afghanistan to happen because he is the sovereign Lord, and he is in control of all the nations of the earth. We look at that in great discouragement. I think God is going to do something greater than anyone has ever seen. What do I mean by that? You will not remember this. You're not old enough. But when the communists walked in and took over China, they executed every Christian they could find, burned every Bible they could, they could discover. They did everything they could, burned churches, execute children, everything they could to wipe the Chinese out as far as every Christian or representation of Christ. And today, the church of China has never been more vibrant and stronger. Do you know that the Chinese churches are actually sending missionaries into other parts of the world that Americans can never go to? Afghanistan had the fastest growing church in the Middle East. There were more Muslims becoming Christians than in any other country. And you think it's any mistake that the devil has now done this? And the most amazing thing is that we know from our experience and from our missionaries that God uses suffering to raise up the church and to make the proclamation of Christ more powerful. And I anticipate that God is going to do some tremendous things in Afghanistan because of the suffering that the church will go through. Would, would that happen in America? Is 
in the early church history of the church, church historians record that the reason Rome became Christian was not because of the great prowess of preachers, but because of people like you who believed in Christ and stood for Christ. They were burned at the stake. They were fed to lions. They were sawn in two. And yet in the end, the church and the message of the gospel prevailed because Christ was at work. When Paul writes and he says, stand firm in the gospel of peace, the shoes of those gospels are of preparation or readiness to walk with God in such measure that we are people who desire more than anything else to be free in our conscience as we walk before God. Paul writes to Timothy in the letter to Timothy as he's serving this church, Ephesus, that we're, writing, that we're reading about. He says, Timothy, this is our charge. We're to have a clean conscience, a pure heart, a sincere faith. Whatever happens in the ministry in that city, the goal, the aim of every Christian is to have a clean conscience, a sincere faith, a pure heart. Do you this morning? Are you standing on what you know to be true? Is there some sin that has enveloped you or is there some fissure that the devil is using to drive a wedge so that he can separate you from Christ? Is there something in the battle of your walk with Christ that you are hiding from God? My friends, confess it now. Come to Jesus now. Because the enemy you fight against does not play fair. And he will destroy this church unless God is our vicar. The gospel is a gospel that invites us to have a clean conscience. What does that mean? Man, let me tell you. What a precious promise. If you confess any sin to God, do you know what he says in 1 John? That not only will he forgive you, but he will cleanse you if you will turn away from him. Isn't that glorious? Isn't that just wonderful? You're forgiven. Secondly, finally, this standing firm on these shoes that God has given us is that once we understand the gospel and we begin to live it out, it produces a peaceful disposition in our soul. How so? Because we recognize that the power at work within us is not our own. It's not our effort. It's not our struggle. It's not our ability or our expectation that we can win the battle. It is that we are abiding in Christ. And we know that no matter what happens, Christ is sufficient for me. <laughs> are you ready to go to battle? Are you ready? Because the moment you walk out this door, you walk back into the field. And the wiles of the devil, the traps, by the way, I forgot to tell you this. You know what the wiles of the devil really are? It's like a trap that's laid in the, in the, in the woods. Remember those old bear traps they used to have that had jaws? The devil's just waiting for you to take a step in that direction. 
Isn't it so glorious to know those words? Greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. And the gates of hell shall not prevail against the church. Let us pray. Our gracious God, as we deal with the conflicts of our lives, as we deal with the uncertainties in our marriages, in our in our relationships with our children, our parents, with each other. We desire to understand more deeply what it is that is given to us as the armament. You've talked about that you have given us truth and you talk about this righteousness that is now in our lives that causes us to yearn to be more like Christ. And you've given us the security of the gospel to stand on. We, we can't wait, Lord, to hear more of what you are doing to raise up your church and to refresh our souls. There may be someone in the sound of my voice this morning who needs, who needs you, Jesus. They, 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 felt, they felt the drill long ago beginning to sink into their hearts where Satan has placed a wedge and he's been pounding on that wedge and they're almost to the point of breaking Jesus, don't let them leave without helping them repair the breach, turning from their sins and finding your open arms to receive them. If you're that person, my friends, Jesus is waiting. His arms are open for you. He desperately wants to give you what you've always wanted but never could attain. Won't you receive him? We pray these things in the name of Christ our Lord. And the people of God said together. <laughs>